What's going on, family? We are back for a third night in the row and a third night in a row. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the whitewashing of Christianity. Come on, join in. It's going to be good. Let's go. What's going on, family? God bless you. This is your boy, Chaplain, Elder, just Kevin, Kevin Benton Jr., man. It's so good to be with y'all once again on tonight. I am so grateful. I am actually enjoying, uh, I always enjoy teaching, but I'm loving getting back into the swing of things and actually teaching on a daily basis. Tonight is going to be the last night until next week, though. Um, We're definitely going to take a break. Um, my voice is starting to wear and everything, but I am having a good time. I've been getting a lot of great feedback. I want to say thank you to everyone for all of your love and support, um, all of your comments. Uh, wishes and everything as we um, gave out a big announcement on today. So I want to say thank you. I see people coming in already. Um, if you're here and um, you're with, rocking with your boy tonight, just go ahead and drop your name in the chat. Wave at me something, throw emoji in there or just something to let me know that you're here with us on tonight. Um, take an opportunity as everybody always does. You know what we got to say. Take a moment and like the broadcast um, and share it. If you're watching with us live on YouTube, um, you can also share it and uh, subscribe to the uh, YouTube channel. Uh, for those of you that know me. I am not the person that's trying to make, get 100,000 followers, I'm not trying to monetize the channel and all the other good stuff. If that happens, then great glory be to God. But this is uh, mainly, I know that my, understand that my call is a teaching ministry. Um, my call is a teaching ministry. I don't discuss a whole lot of like current events and stuff that's going to go viral um, and get a whole lot of clicks. I don't do clickbait and stuff like that, not knocking people that do. Um, but my ministry, God has gifted me to be a teacher. And so I understand that my uh, call from the Lord is to present teaching. And that's what our channel does. We educate, equip, and empower healthy disciples of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to do. And so the Lord has afforded us another opportunity and way um, to do that. So for those of you all that did not catch the announcement, we have a podcast. Yes, yes. We're going to clap it up there. I don't want to do it too loud so it don't bust up people's ears on the podcast. Um, but yes, all of our teaching um, that is streamed live via uh, Facebook or YouTube will also go onto our podcast. So as soon as I'm finished, um, teaching this on tonight, then we'll go ahead and upload it. We are live in, um, or it's, yes, our podcast is live on Spotify. And I love Spotify. They've actually taken over Anchor, um, but I love them because with Spotify, you can actually watch the videos um, and not just listen to the audio, but you can actually watch the video along with it. Um, and I love that because some people just don't have an hour to actually sit down and watch in front of a computer, but they love to listen and watch on the go. And Spotify gives you an opportunity to do that. Um, so Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, um, iHeartRadio um, as well. So wherever you catch podcasts at, um, chances are you're going to be able to listen to us there. So thank you for the support. Had a lot of great um, people jumping in and actually subscribing to the podcast. So we're grateful for that um, and everything. And this is what we're here to do. We're here to teach, educate, equip, and empower um, disciples. So last two nights, we have been talking about the subject of, is Christianity the white man's religion? And we looked at overwhelming evidence to the contrary that says that Christianity is not the religion of the white man or any particular group of people. It's not the religion of Africans. It's not the uh, religion of, of Black people, of any uh, Asians or, uh, or anybody, not even just the Jews. It is the, it is the uh, religion that has meant for all people, God's salvation is available. 
and meant to save everyone. Um, and so we are grateful um, for the opportunity to present all of that evidence that we looked at last night or the last two nights. Um, but tonight, um, well, first, let me say um, so hello to my friend Tanisha Stewart, um, faithful, faithful supporter, a great Christian uh, apologist and theologian in her own right, author um, and everything. And so we're just grateful for everything that God is doing in her ministry as well. Um, but tonight we're going to tackle one of my favorite subjects. Tonight we're going to look at the whitewashing of Christianity, um, a very important subject. Um, and we're going to look in and examine this and talk about many different ways in which this has happened. Um, this is largely based upon the teaching from a good friend of mine, Dr. Uh, I keep calling him Dr. Uh, Pastor Jerome Gay. Maybe I'm being a little prophetic. I'm not a prophet, but I have prophetic moments. Um, but this is largely based on the teachings of Pastor Jerome Gay. He's aware of this presentation. I've actually had the uh, opportunity. I, I sent it to him and just wanted him to bless off on it. Um, he's a phenomenal pastor, friend, teacher. Um, the first time I heard him um, years ago, I, I was just blown away. And so when he wrote this book, when I tell y'all this book is amazing, it is a masterpiece. He's just a phenomenal writer. And he actually just introduced another book um, called Church Hurt that was just released um, less than a month ago. Um, so if you haven't had the opportunity or you haven't taken Taking the opportunity, please go and support his work. Um, he's just a phenomenal writer. And this book that he has written is a gift to the body of Christ. And tonight's teaching is largely going to be based upon it. And anywhere in the, uh, in this presentation, uh, for those of you that don't know, all of our presentations are available for purchase. Um, you can go to my website, uh, www.greaterworksdiscipleship.com, and you can look at all of the many different teachings we have there, um, and it is available for purchase. Anytime I do a teaching and I utilize information from someone else, I always make sure to cite that individual um, in the notes portion of the PowerPoint um, so that you understand where that particular teaching is coming from and that we make sure that also we give credit to the actual source of that information. So tonight, I want to go ahead and, uh, and get into this teaching. Um, if you remember, for those of us that remember good times, y'all remember good times, anytime, you know, so I'm not going to try and sing that. That's for somebody else. But y'all remember good times. There was a scene, a very, very popular, well-known scene in good times where Michael uh, confronts his mom about this picture of white Jesus that is hanging on her wall. So we're going to tune into this, and this is going to uh, form the basis of our discussion. But before we do that, if you would join me in a word of prayer. So, Father, thank you uh, so much for the opportunity once again to present this teaching on tonight. We pray um, that uh, everything that is done tonight will edify, equip, and empower disciples of Jesus Christ. We ask your blessings upon this and each and every person that will tune in. Uh, may we all learn something and may we all uh, uh, just continue to grow in our relationship with you as we learn um, the truth. We want history to be accurate. Um, we want it to be accurate. And so we pray, God, that as the truth comes out tonight, that it will uh, educate many people and help us to have an informed um, informed perspective of how Christianity has developed and making sure that we're giving credit to the people uh, where it is due. Um, but all glory belongs to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's go ahead and take a look at this famous scene from Good Times. If you haven't caught it before, uh, this is your first opportunity. Uh, let me make sure my volume is up. And uh, here we go. Blessings. Mama, couldn't we at least let black Jesus hang alongside Forget it. The only Jesus I know is him. And the one thing he don't need is a partner. <laughs> Mama, how do we know Jesus wasn't black? He could have been from the lost tribe of Israel. They were supposed to be black. I bet they were. If ever people were lost, we're it. <laughs> now, just watch out both of you. This picture has been in my family for as long as I can remember. When I was a baby, I don't 
my papa or this Jesus. Now he's the one I know and love. So let's close the subject. Jesus was black. The Bible would have said so. But it does say so. What are you talking about? I read about it. Um, it's in Revelations chapter 1, verse 14. I read about it in Muhammad Speaks. It says, um, <laughs> his hair is like wool and his eyes are like flame and fire. Oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> You sure do say that, don't it? And see, Mama, look at that hair, like wool, ain't it? And look at them eyes, red like fire. Yeah, they sure is. So, uh, I don't know how many of you all, but I know I definitely grew up seeing pictures of white Jesus everywhere, um, just all over the halls and just in every place that you go to. Um, and it was always just kind of taken for granted that Jesus was white. Um, and so we see those pictures and it forms in, uh, sub, in our subconscious, it just forms the opinion that that was an accurate depiction of Jesus's skin color. Um, but tonight we're going to look at this from a different angle. And we're actually going to, the next thing we're going to do is look at this particular, um, uh, the scripture that Michael was talking about. So Michael was quoting uh, Revelations, the first chapter, the 14th and 15th verse. So let's look at it. And the Bible says that the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. But we want you to understand tonight that when the scripture is actually uh, making that description, it is not actually describing Jesus's skin color. All right. It is not giving us a description of the physical person of Jesus. This is really um, uh, metaphors or uh, but not personification, but metaphors and speaking of some other things. And we're going to examine exactly what he's talking about on tonight. So the first thing, let's look at this when it talks about hair like wool. All right. So um, it is uh, um, the color is the point of comparison here. That's what it talks about. And it's signifying purity, glory and wisdom and dignity and holiness and eternity. It associates this person with the ancient of days that was mentioned, described in Daniel's chapter seven, verse 19, or excuse me, Daniel chapter seven, verse nine. And watch what it says here. It says, and as I kept watching, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow and the hair of his head like white as wool. His throne was a flaming fire and his uh, wheels were a blazing fire. So we can see here and again here in Daniel 10, I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold, uh, with a belt of gold from Euphrates around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the brilliance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. That is where that particular teaching or description of Jesus actually comes from. It is not describing just his physical person, all right? And then also when it talks about his eyes like a fiery flame, that signifies energy or fierce opposition to his enemies. It's speaking of judgment, authoritative presence, intelligence, his omniscience, a consuming indignation against sin, and in Jesus taking vengeance upon all the ungodly. This is confirmed by looking at Revelations 19, 11 through 12. We always want to take you to the scripture so that you're not being asked to take my word for it. Let's look and examine what the word of God has to say. Um, I thought I had that in here. Well, all right, Revelations, let me, I'll just read it for you. Let me go all the way back up. 
forgive me for that one, y'all. All right, let's go back there, get out of the way. Oh, and there we go. All right, so Revelations 19, 11 through 12 says, then I saw uh, the heaven open and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. So we can see here that comes from Revelations 19, 11 through 12. And then last of all, feet like bronze. This symbolizes Jesus's strength and stability, judgment, moral purity, or consuming anger against one's enemies. So when we look at this and do proper exegesis upon this, we can see that this is not just giving us, it's not intended to give us a physical description of Jesus Christ. It is describing elements of his, uh, of his person and who he is and what he has come to do. It is not just giving us a physical description of who he is. All right. Uh, I'm sorry, y'all. Let me do this again and pull my slide back up so we can make sure that we everybody is on the same page. All right. There we go. All right. So we can see here that that is not the intention of that scripture to give us a physical description of Jesus. So when um, a lot of people, when we're confronted with evidence and we start talking about the conversation about what Jesus looks like or saying that white Jesus is not an accurate depiction of who Jesus is, then they'll say stuff like Jesus's race doesn't matter. And so talks like that, they get away from the core message. And I'm colorblind, things saying things like that, that I'm not looking at color. They're often deployed very close to the subject, but this only nurtures the delusion that Jesus was white and contributes to people making the eternal decision to reject Jesus Christ based upon this erroneous assertion. So when thousands of black and brown people are turning away from the faith in part due to the perpetuation of white Jesus, we should not close the subject. We should not just say that his race doesn't matter when people have been putting his race out there for thousands of years erroneously and ignoring all of the evidence to the contrary. And when one's community's contributions are highlighted while the contributions of another are neglected, we cannot close the subject. For years, even growing up in the church, I grew up Church of God in Christ, and I heard about a lot of white theologians. I heard about white pastors. I heard about white church fathers um, and everything, but I never, growing up in church, I never heard anyone have a discussion about Tertullian or Athanasius or Cyprian or Origen. I never knew anything about the library in Alexandria or, or, or uh, Tertullian of Carthage, that the word Trinity came from a North African church father, knew nothing about the contributions of people of color in the development and spread of Christianity. So no, we cannot just close the subject when an entire faith is misrepresented and tonight we'll see that that is done intentionally. We cannot just close the subject and say that his race does not matter. And then there are some people that will say, hey man, look, I'm not here to deal with all of that race stuff. I'm just here to preach the gospel. That's all we need to worry about is just preach the gospel and God's, or Jesus is gonna take care of everything else. No, we cannot just leave it at that. We don't have the luxury of a mere academic classroom and theoretical discussions about these issues. Real people need real answers to the unfolding real life drama and the questions that we have surrounding these subjects. People are walking away from the faith and denying the faith based upon this misinformation, this intentional misinformation. And so if the church takes the indifferent path of an insulated fundamentalism that refuses to acknowledge, let alone engage the culture by providing Christ-centered solutions to these problems, then we'll lose the little credibility that remains for us in the African-American community. 
I won't call her name, but as I was sharing this uh, broadcast tonight um, with people and inviting them, I had a sister in inbox me almost immediately and said, hey, thank you for the invite, but I no longer subscribe to Christianity. And it broke my heart. This is someone that I knew that I actually went to church with, that I worshiped with, someone to praise team with. And she has walked away from the faith. And in my mind, of course, I, I, I tried to engage with her. But in my mind, I wonder if things like this and the misrepresentation of Christianity are part of the reason that some are walking away from the faith. So no, we cannot just close the issue and walk away from it and just say, preach the gospel. We owe people the truth and we owe them to walk in integrity regarding the information. And that's what we're gonna look at and do on tonight. All right? So the omission of the African presence in scripture and history has millions functionally saying that white Jesus, just like Florida Evans, is the only Jesus that they know. And this is a travesty that cannot be ignored or dismissed as divisive. What's divisive is presenting nearly every biblical character as a white man. All right. And this is not something that I'm just saying. We're going to show you evidence today, um, screenshots from the Internet of people that I've Googled. And you'll see that the overwhelming majority of these images who, of, of people who were undoubtedly people of color, they're presented as white men. All right. And, and they're presented as a fact. And then labeling those that address this lie as troublemaking dissenters, what's truly divisive is presenting one race of people as the entire representation of the Hebrew nation. So no, having this discussion is not wrong. Um, our race and the truth is distinct. It is distinguished. It is divide, uh, uh, diverse. It is different. And it, but it is not divisive. All right. So pointing out the African presence in the Bible, pointing out people of color in the Bible, pointing out the misinformation and erroneous information that has intentionally been perpetrated for years. It is not divisive. It is giving it is giving people an opportunity to tell the truth. All right. So um, SK on YouTube asked the question, um, what about the book of Enoch? Do you think implementing its teaching could help? Um, I appreciate the question, but in all honesty, I don't believe that we need the book of Enoch in order to give credibility to the fact that people of color are not only mentioned all throughout the Bible, but that we can see even if, um, in the biblical evidence how they were instrumental in the growth and development of Christianity. And we've done that over the last two nights, looking at people from the Old Testament, um, such as Hagar, who was the first person that seen a Christophany or a theophany of uh, 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 Jesus Christ in human form in the Old Testament. We looked at people um, like Hagar. We looked at people like David, like the Queen of Sheba, like the Shulamite woman that Solomon was referring to in the New Testament, people like Cyrene, uh, or excuse me, not Cyrene, but Simon of Cyrene, Apollos. Um, we looked at uh, all kinds of information. So we don't need to go to a non-canonized book to affirm the dignity of people of color. We can do that just looking at the scriptures. I do appreciate the question, but I don't think that we go, need to go to an extra biblical source when there is a, a plethora of information directly in the scriptures. But again, thank you for the question. All right. All right. So um, our mission in this teaching, the mission of uh, Pastor Gay in this book is not to merely expose whitewashing because we're not going to just talk about the problem. But at the end of this teaching, we're going to show you the proposed solutions that have been put forth as well by Pastor Gay. All right. So our, our, our presentation is not to merely expose whitewashing, but to show its uh, negative impact on, on how Christianity is perceived outside of white evangelicalism. 
All right. We will not deify nor deny blackness. I love that. Again, our culture, our ethnicity, our blackness, who we are is submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not our intention to deify blackness. Our race and everything about us is submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we do aim to affirm black people in their God-given ethnic, cultural, and personal distinctives. And I wonder why sometimes it is only when um, African-Americans or people of color look to the scriptures to have their dignity affirmed that it becomes divisive. Um, and everything like that. Um, when when other cultures, when we have the Dutch Reformed Church, when we have Asian churches, when we have uh, the Korean church on the corner, and they call it the Korean church or the Spanish church, no one has any issue with that. But then when we start talking about terms like the black church, then people have that, that becomes a divisive issue. And it should not be so. We ought to ask questions based upon this information as to why that should have to be. All right. God bless you, uh, Sister Vicki. It's good to see you with us again on tonight. All right. So um, our aim is to demonstrate the truth of how God is most glorified when people of all ethnicities are unified together in worship to our God. I want to see that day. I'm looking forward, Matthew, to seeing that day, man, when all people from all ethnicities look at all cultures, all hues, um, all different languages are gathered under the throne of heaven, all of us in worship to our king. Um, that is a great day that we are looking forward to. So um, uh, it's always necessary for us to define terms. So when we use the word whitewashing, what is it explicitly that we mean? All right. So whitewashing or whitewash Christianity refers to the affinity of white Christian scholars to dominate the Bible, Christian art, literature and history with white people at the expense of authentic, authentic ethnicity and true scholarship in order to resonate most deeply with white audiences, primarily based upon their experiences, presuppositions, and worldviews. So what does this mean? This means that when we have white scholars who are writing books, who are writing uh, theological papers, who are developing websites, et cetera, et cetera, they're always perpetuating um, or erroneous information, not doing actual research, but they're presenting um, Christian art, literature, and history with only white faces at it, but they're never talking about the contributions of the people of any other ethnicity, particularly when that information is plain as day right in front of them in the scriptures. And again, this is not something that we believe. It is something that is intentional. And we're going to prove that in this presentation on tonight. So not so long ago, um, we had a particular um, anchor on Fox News um, that stirred up a little bit of uh, you know trouble, stirred up a little bit of stuff um, because she had this discussion on the news. So we're going to take a look at this clip and then we're going to jump in and see what you all have to say um, about this. So let's take a look at this uh, particular clip and see what whitewashing looks like in real time. Here we go. When I saw this headline, I kind of laughed and I said, oh, this is so ridiculous. Yet it oh, apologies. Let's do another this. person claiming it's racist to have a white Santa, you know, and by the way, for all you kids watching at home, Santa just is white. But this person is just arguing that that maybe we should we should also. I'm sorry. Yeah, let me start have a black Santa. When I saw this headline, I kind of laughed and I said, oh, this is so ridiculous. Yet another person claiming it's racist to have a white Santa, you know. And by the way, for all you kids watching at home, Santa just is white. But this person is just arguing that that maybe we should we should also have a black Santa. Just because it makes you feel uncomfortable doesn't mean it has to change. You know, I mean, 
Jesus was a white man too. But you, you know, it's like we have, he was a historical figure. I mean, that's a verifiable fact as is Santa. I just want right. the kids watching to know that. So that Jesus is white is a verifiable fact. My face is kind of looking like this brother right here too. Like, oh, really? So that is a verifiable fact. Well, let's examine the information that she is talking about. All right. So why has a brown skinned man from a region full of people of color been historically presented and accepted as a white European? Why is that? All right. So let's look into just a little bit of this information. All right. So she was talking about Santa Claus. Santa Claus is absolutely a white man. Well, the evidence says that St. Nicholas is thought to have been born in the city of Patera, which is now in Turkey in AD 270 and died in the nearby town of Myra on December 6, 343. He is actually believed to have attended the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, at which the date of Christmas was fixed as December 25th. And so this picture on the left is a historical picture of Santa Claus. So how in the world then, uh, uh, Megan, are you saying that Santa Claus just is a white man and Jesus is a white man too? If you had done just a little bit of research, you would see that that information is factually incorrect. So again, we're going to look at some more information. This is one of my favorite clips. A lot of times when people go on The Breakfast Club, um, they just bomb, especially Christians, uh, particularly gospel artists. I'm not going to call nobody else's name, um, but they you have to anticipate that Charlemagne and, uh, and, and DJ Envy are going to ask you some questions about Christianity, about, uh, about LGBT issues, LGBT um, issues. So you would want to anticipate those questions. But I love that Kurt Franklin, he sits up under uh, Dr. Tony Evans um, in Texas. I love the way he handled himself in this particular conversation. Let's watch the way Kurt Franklin does um, Christian apologetics when he's talking with Charlemagne. Let's check this out. Just to be very candid. And you know, you know, I I am I am in love with the faith that I profess. Like I've seen Christ change my life. I've seen it. I've seen it. And so I believe in it. And I'm not talking about the whitewashed Christianity of America, you know, uh, you know, that 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 think that it, it only came up after the transatlantic slave trade and colonialism. I'm, you know, there were African Christians, you know, uh, two centuries before Constantine, you know, in the sub-Saharan parts of Africa. So I really believe now that I didn't know. I, I thought Christianity was created by Constantine. Nope. Wow. Christianity existed in the sub-Saharan parts of Africa and Alexandria two centuries before Constantine. Wow. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Augustine is an African. Yes, yes, yes. So, 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 and so, but, but there has been a whitewashing of Christianity in America. Uh, Europe didn't influence Africa. Africa influenced Europe. Mm -hmm. It You know, it it existed in centuries in Alexandria. So, so in in and uh, and and and, and uh, this was a community. This was a city of of intellectual people. You know, had the largest library at that time in in the ancient world. And Christianity existed there. So they were already hearing about the um, the uh, false gods or the uh, Greek. Uh, 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 a horse, you know, and and um, and and so you have a a historical truth that I've seen transform my broken life. But I do believe that because of the whitewashing of Christianity in America and and uh, and uh, it's 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 brokenness when it when it's come to black and brown people is that there has been this rise of religion that makes people think that you got to be a certain way. Mm -hmm to look like what a person that loves God to be. And my job is to debunk all of it. 
Boy, you better go on, Uncle Kirk, man. That's how you do them apologetics, man. See them name drops that he was doing? This is what happens when we educate ourselves with the truth. Um, again, he's absolutely correct. Um, Christianity existed in the sub-Saharan parts of Africa, meaning anything um, lower than Egypt, and it just didn't exist in Alexandria. He could have dropped the uh, the city of Carthage. He could have talked about Nubia. He could have talked about Axum. We talked about all of these places um, last night. He could have mentioned all kinds of names out there, but I'm glad that he dropped the name Augustine, even though he was much later, but there were many people that came along even before him. Cyprian, Origen, Athanasius, um, uh, uh, Shenouda Retreat. We talked about so many different people last night, and we're going to mention some of those again tonight for those of you that missed it. But that is how you do apologetics, right? Ready, not just on there to talk about record, but talk about my music, but he took the opportunity to educate someone. And even though have millions of listeners now are confronted with the truth about Christianity, absolutely phenomenal job by Kirk. Yes, to be. All right. So Dr. Eric Mason, uh, uh, pastor of Epiphany Church in uh, Epiphany Fellowship, rather, in Philly, says that white Jesus has done more harm historically than the Confederate flag. Um, and he's absolutely correct. The same way that when we see the Confederate flag, we know that it represents uh, racism. When we see white Jesus hanging on the walls and of people's homes and then hanging in public spaces, that represents people who have not done real research. It represents um, a, a, a bondage um, of, of our mind and that we, uh, it's, it's it's a Eurocentrism um, and everything. And so we want to make sure that we are accurate. It's not about painting Jesus black, but it's about being accurate in the depiction of who he is. All right. So again, uh, we, and not just Jesus, but we're going to see many other people on tonight. All right. So whitewashing is not accidental. All right. I know that that may be the first thought by so many people. Maybe they didn't know. But no, we're going to show you empirical evidence that this was not an accident. And those who were doing the printing, proclaiming and proselytizing were not aloof to the reality of color in the Bible and the African influence of the Christian faith that, precede the, that preceded the European reformers and Puritans. They absolutely knew, but they neglected to put it out there and obvi for obvious reasons. All right. This was not uninten unintentional. Presenting an accurate narrative of history that includes Africa would undermine a whitewashed narrative of history. It would forfeit the power to control and propagate a narrative that favors the idea that Christianity is primarily shaped, influenced, and is the property of white people. So again, we're going to get into the evidence to demonstrate that this is not something that was accidental. No, absolutely not. It was not accidental. Uh, let's keep going. Whitewashing is also destructive, presenting one group of people, um, presenting one group of people um, as the exclusive choice of God's use. But the fact that this false notion is functionally supported by institutions that hold themselves to high standards of orthodoxy and historical ac accuracy. How can you be a scholar, a theologian, a university, a professor? and a person whose responsibility it is to do research. And instead of doing your own research, you allow this whitewashing of people of color um, to be presented without actually looking and examining the facts. Again, this is not something that was accidental. All right. It is, it's unnecessary. It's an unnecessary barrier to the message of hope. And it causes a lot of people to think, what role did we play in God's plan? If I don't see any people of color in the scripture, 
then was God concerned at all about people of color? Or we'll have the narrative that's out there that is completely believed by many people and perpetrated by others that uh, black people did not receive Christianity or not hear anything about Jesus until it was given to them by white slave owners. Again, when this misinformation is put out there and people do not take the time to do the proper research and put out accurate information, it can serve as a barrier to people receiving um, the Christian faith. And it's hypocritical to say that race doesn't matter after race has already been used in favor of one group of people. You can't put Jesus out there as being a European white man and then for thousands of years and then come back later on and say that, oh, we're not, it doesn't matter excuse me, and paint the Bible and Christian history largely white and be apathetic to how that impacts people of color. Just because it doesn't impact you does not mean that it doesn't impact other people. And I'm a living witness from talking with soldiers, from talking with friends and family, that this is absolutely a problem in our community and it has to be addressed. It has to be addressed. So um, I love this scene in the movie. Um, I can't remember Dr. Uh, Pastor Gate talks about it in his book, but this is one of the things that I thought about when um, when I was reading his book and, and listening to um, the teaching. Um, Dr. Uh, Van Balen says that the cults are the unpaid bills of the church. The cults, particularly black religious identity cults, people like Hebrew Israelims, uh, uh, black, uh, 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 the nation of Islam, different things like that. Five percenters, comedic, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, commit. Um, you know, people that uh, subscribe to Kemeticism. Um, their religion exists, uh, so, not solely, but primarily and continues to be perpetrated because people did not take the time to do real research and give answers to people when these things came up. Remember this scene in Malcolm X. I want to show you this and then we're going to have a quick discussion about this. Remember this scene and then let's talk about it. Oh, I'm so surprised. I'm so surprised. Y'all been in church two hours and you're expecting to see heaven out here and there ain't no heaven. You're still right here on earth. Sister, why don't you come on down to the church? Hear the black man's truth. No, you can't deny it. You can't deny it. You've been down on your knees the last two hours, haven't you? Begging some God to, to help you in the hereafter. But the hereafter is right now, brother. The hereafter is here and now. Let me, let me, let me talk to you for one second, brother. Listen, I, I know you're a smart man. I can tell you're a wise man. You look good. Now, you in here in this church every day, you're in here praying to this God. I'm telling you, these so-called white Christians, they're hanging out black Christians from trees, brother. This is the man that hates you. He tells you he loves you, but he doesn't do anything for you. He tells you to foam at the mouth. He tells you to faint and sing and shout and hope for something in the hereafter. We can have it right now, brother. We can have it right now. Come on down. Two o'clock. See you later. Salam You know what that means, brother? That means peace be unto you. So this for me is a problem. Um, because what we saw there in this clip from the movie is really a lot of what we see today. When misinformation and erroneous information is going out there, just false teaching, period, instead of having the information and the willingness to engage people and give them truth, people just like, no, no that's not my problem. I'm not going to believe that. And they just, and they walk away. But there are some people that will then be influenced by people like Malcolm X and then begin to ask, well, if nobody in Christianity has anything to say about uh, how uh, black people were uh, historically a part of God's plan, 
Maybe Islam has the answers that black people need. Maybe Islam is the religion that should be for black people. Maybe uh, the, um, uh, the nation of Islam is something that is good or better for us because Christianity doesn't have those answers. What would have happened if these people were armed and educated with the information that says that, hey, look, we're not here to defend the actions and the beliefs and the perspectives of white Christians, or excuse me, white people who claim to be Christians and abuse Christianity. We're not here to defend them. We're not here to defend their teachings. We are here to defend the life and the death and the teachings and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not people who claim to represent him. And so when we allow teaching like that, when we allow people like him to continue to influence people in our communities and people in this world, people of, uh, of color, then what happens is, is we the church begins and, and, and begins to lose them because people begin to think that we don't have answers. But we do have answers. The gospel has answers and we have the information. And tonight it's our responsibility and our pleasure to make sure that that's passed on to you. All right. Oh. So let's keep going. So let's look at historical whitewashing. This occurs when practically all biblical characters are presented as white men, white men and women in literature, all the way from children's books to textbooks and seminaries and places dedicated to Christian education. All right. They present the church fathers as white men, despite their African heritage, but not doing so with white men. So we'll see um, and have seen uh, the last two nights several, uh, over a dozen people of color from North Africa. But when you Google their names on the internet, you will see that the overwhelming majority of pictures are of white men. And there's no way in the world that could be historically accurate that people that come from that region of the world in North Africa with all of that melanin in their skin are looking like European uh, uh, white men. All right. So again, it's just historically inaccurate. And it assumes that all of the positive contributions to Christian history are made by white men or rewriting history to present them as white. For many people, Christian history, church history doesn't begin until well into the Reformation, because that is when you see people like John Calvin, Martin Luther uh, and, and so many different other people become the faces of Christianity and representing orthodoxy or right, uh, right teaching. But tonight we're going to see that even men like Martin Luther were persuaded and influenced by the uh, church in Africa. And that what they saw of the Coptic church in Africa was what actually influenced them to start the Reformation. But again, if we don't have this historical truth, if we don't have the evidence to back that up, then people will continue then to believe the lie. One of the things I hear Charlemagne say on The Breakfast Club a lot is nobody, uh, nobody wants to hear the truth when the lie is more entertaining. And again, um, th that is, I believe that that is absolutely true. A lot of people are not interested in the truth because the lie is just more entertaining. All right, let's keep going. So not only historical whitewashing, but there is class whitewashing. And that is relegating people of color in scripture and history to that of slaves almost exclusively. Tonight, we're going to look at a group of people called the Cushites. And we'll see in scripture how uh, a lot of times when they're referred to by scholars and theologians in commentaries, it is automatically assumed for some reason that this was a group of slaves uh, or that this was a people who were slaves when all of the evidence actually points to the contrary. 
All right. So this is seen class whitewashing is seen um, in house when in house scholars present the Kushites in scripture. A people who were known for archery, leadership and diligence are presented as slaves, even though they are mentioned more than any other group in the Old Testament in terms of variation. They are mentioned more than any other group of people other than the Jews. The Kushites are mentioned in scripture more than any other group of people. But you'll see, and, and I don't want to get too ahead of myself, um, but we'll see how um, the intentional whitewashing is done with them. All right. So Pastor Gay uh, goes on to talk about how the Kushites are undeniably black Africans mentioned in scripture. The word Kush itself means black again. So that's really all the evidence that you need right there. The word Kush means black. So Kushites definitely were people of color. And historically, the people of Kush have been dark-skinned people. The Kushites were soldiers and mercenaries in the army of Egypt, the primary ally of Judah in her rebellion against the Babylonians. Egyptians have a tradition that after the flood, Ham traveled up the Nile River. This is talking about Noah's son, Ham. He traveled up the Nile River to the Adabar Plain. And from there, he could see the Ethiopian tableland. Ham's family settled there and also in the nearby lowland. This tradition, supported by the biblical account, makes the Kushites among the most ancient people group in existence. Again, makes them almost the, uh, excuse me, the most ancient people group in terms of existence. Now, let's look at where Kush is on a map so that we can kind of orient you to what we're talking about on tonight. So you can see here, uh, I'm sorry, there we go. Oh man, I did it again. All right, let's get back here. Give me one second, y'all. I'm make sure y'all with me. Okay, so we're good. We're good. All right, there we go. All right. And all right. So we can see here, this is where uh, present day, th this is then. Um, you can see here the south of Egypt uh, and everything like that. This was the land of Cush. And we can see here now, um, you can see then and now uh, and everything. I'm sorry, this is uh, then. Obviously, you could look and, and see there. But you can see here now where the area of Cush is in the biblical day. All right, so let's go a little bit further and talk a little bit more um, about the Kushites. So the Hebrew Bible mentions the uh, Kush and related terms 54 times and related terms, uh, excuse me, the vast majority of these uh, references to Kush as a geographical region denote the African land on the southern border of ancient Egypt, known most commonly today as Nubia. All right. In English Bibles, Kush is most frequently translated as Ethiopia, but sometimes Nubia. So ask yourself, why do they? What would be the actual reasoning for sometimes when you mention the Kushites or, or the land of Kush in the Bible, you call it Kush, but other times it's mentioned as Ethiopia? Why would that be? All right. And even sometimes the Sudan, because ancient Nubia occupied the northern and southern regions of present day Sudan and Egypt. Respectively, it is to be distinguished from the country of Ethiopia located in the Horn of Africa, as we just saw in this slide here. All right. So looking at Nubian art tribute, we can see here that Kush was a part of Nubia, which stretched to the upper Nile of the Red Sea or to the Red Sea. Although Kush and Egypt consistently exchange culture, they maintain distinct identities. In the Egyptian art, such as the tomb of uh, Amenhotep on the left, you can see that Kushites are depicted with darker skin and a distinct cropped hairstyle. So you can see here, this is what uh, ancient art and uh, architecture shows that the Kushites look like. All right. Ancient Nubian cultures were sophisticated and cosmopolitan as the region served as a major, a major trading center uh, of goods from the African interior, from the Arabian desert and the Mediter uh, Mediterranean basin. 
from sub-Saharan Africa, Nubian communities traded gold, ivory, ebony, and animal pelts. And sometimes merchants traded the animals themselves. Animals such as monkeys, elephants, antelopes, and giraffes were exported to private zoos across the Mediterranean and Near East. From Arabia, Egypt, and the Maghreb in the Mediterranean basin, Nubians imported products such as olive oil, incense, timber, and bronze. And the hazardous cataracts of the Nile made sailing long distances uh, along the Nile nearly impossible. So many goods from the Levant had to be imported from the Nubian East through ports on the Red Sea. So again, you can see that these were a, a people who were very rich in, in goods and in trading. Um, this was not a group of slaves, even though they are often um, uh, painted that way a lot of times in the scriptures. So um, we talked about this a little bit that uh, a lot of times they're presented as slaves or there are different translations of these particular people group. So the use of the term Ethiopia is misleading because modern day Ethiopia is a different location than where Cush is. Now think about that. Let me slow down and make sure that we break this down. Ethiopia is in a different location than Cush. So why, based on translations, do they input Cush instead of Ethiopia or, you know, and uh, put, put Ethiopia instead of Cush? We talked about yesterday, but when you see Ethiopia mentioned in scripture, every single time it is talking about uh, the color of the skin of that group of people. All right. Ethiopia means burnt faced one or scorched faced one. So they're literally describing the color of that person's skin, not the geographical location of where they were from. So why is this significant? Because the use of several different terms to describe Kush is an, is an attempt and a deliberate attempt to diffuse the significance that these Black Africans played in redemptive history. So we can confuse people if we sometimes use the word Ethiopia instead of using the word Kush, because if we're constantly using the word Kush, then we have to start talking about who these Kushites were and why they are mentioned so many different times in the biblical scriptures. How many of you um, in growing up in church ever heard anything about the Kushites? Not the only time I ever heard anything about the Cushites was the fact that Moses married a Cushite woman and people took that for some reason as a negative to say that, oh, because he married uh, uh, that his sister uh, was getting mad at him because he was actually um, um, marrying a black woman. But that is not what the scripture actually intended to say. Uh, Vicky's like, look, I've never heard of the Cushites and neither did I. Grew up in church all my life in Sunday school every week every week and never heard anything about these black Africans from Kush, never heard anything about Kush. Um, I do remember growing up um, and everything. Remember back in the day, some of y'all ain't old enough to remember this, um, but back in the day when we used to wear the medallions with Africa on them and then black men was running around calling black women, that's my Nubian princess and all that. And they had no idea where Nubia was in the scripture or in, 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 in a, on a map, period. Didn't know nothing about Nubia, didn't know none of that stuff, but we were so proud to just have something that um, affirmed our dignity. But again, Having that information now helps me to, with a greater conviction, see, uh, have the, uh, excuse me, the um, dignity of people of color affirmed as we see the historical significance that these people played in the scriptures. All right. So scholars have been intentional about painting the Cushites as inferior and slaves. When they are mentioned, they're primarily referenced as a place of subservience. 
Um, and while there is no biblical support to label the Kushites as slaves, scholars have taken the liberty to fill in white spaces of history with a white narrative of this great people group. Again, uh, uh, just something that they take for granted that these people were particularly slaves. But during the Old Testament, uh, we definitely know that they, uh, they were known to be soldiers and archers, to be more specific. Biblically speaking, we saw that Cushite soldiers served in David's army in 2 Samuel, the 18th chapter, the 19th through the 33rd verse. And it was actually a Cushite who shared the news of Absalom's death with David. The text points to Cushites being soldiers, not them being slaves. If they were slaves, how were they willingly fighting with Judah against Babylon? That doesn't make any sense. All right. But commentaries have wrongly labeled them as slaves, while conquered nations um, make with, uh, would make slaves of their own conquest. We know that that's true. This is true of all nationalities. It wasn't just um, um, conquered nations that became slaves. And it definitely simply wasn't just the Cushites. It was the Hittites, even the Israelites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the, uh, the Arameans. Um, but again, those other nations aren't painted with the same broad slavery stroke. So even though we know the Hittites were conquered and the Amorites and the Canaanites were conquered, how come when we see them in scriptures, there is not this automatic assumption that they were slaves and that they were made to be subservient. But when we see Cushites in scripture, scholars just take it for granted that they were a slave nation. That makes absolutely no sense. And again, it's intentional. All right, so whitewashing when not confronted exacts the same vitriol that white supremacy does in our society. In many ways, whitewashing is an extension of white supremacy. So we're going to maintain this air of elitism by making sure that every face that you see in Christianity, every face that you see in Christian history is going to be a white person that will help to elevate and continue this fallacy of white people being superior. And that goes against the gospel of Jesus Christ. White supremacy is the fanaticism and obsession of whiteness, which leads to the dehumanization, the degradation and disenfranchisement of those not considered white, thus making whiteness the standard for all other people groups. And when, when black people, when people of color, when other ethnicities, when we see this, when we see this um, subconsciously and sometimes intentionally in our faces, it creates a barrier and a blockade to people receiving the gospel because all we see when we see the gospel, all we see is white faces. But we know historically that that is not true. They were not all black faces, but we want to be historically accurate and we need to be historically accurate when talking about people in the Bible. All right. Again, Eurocentrism making whiteness universal. And that is placing the experience, the culture, and the philosophy of people of European descent at the center of personal understanding and culture. Last night in our teaching, we observed that it was actually uh, two, two of the three people that sent Paul on his second missionary journey to take the gospel to Europe, two of those three people were uh, people of color. They were Africans. Um, it was Lucius of Cyrene in Acts 13 verses one through three, Lucius of Cyrene, as well as um, Simeon, who is called Niger. And the word Niger literally means the black man. So again, two of the three people that commissioned Paul to take the gospel to Europe were black men. All right. Again, so it wasn't um, Europe that influenced Africa. It was Africa that influenced Europe. So there cannot be Christian unity without um, acknowledging the diversity. 
We cannot have unity until we are honest about the diversity that is absolutely in the scriptures. All right. Because God does not have a colorblind mentality. All right. When all of the people um, in the world from all ethnicities, from every culture and creed, from every nationality, that when they come together, that demonstrates the beauty of the glory of God, because we see all of his creation that he has, he has created. We see all of them in their ethnic distinction, worshiping God. But we should not see everybody looking the same. I'm going to say this. We can be unified without being uniform. We do not all have to look the same. We do not all have to be painted with white faces. We don't all have to worship the same. We can be unified in our worship to God without being uniform. All right. And that cannot uh, I cannot say that enough. All right. So we know that many people mean well and are well intentioned when they say this. But saying I don't see color, my friends, that is not a compliment. All right. What it is saying is you don't see me because when you see me, yes, you should see a Christian. Yes, you should see a disciple. But what you will see is a disciple who happens to be a black man. What we would see when we saw Paul was a disciple of Jesus Christ, who was a Jewish man. All right. We should be able to see people who are Asian, who are uh, uh, Puerto Rican, who are Pacific Islanders. We should be able to see people in their ethnic distinction and but not but saying I don't see color. That's not a compliment. Because my diversity, our diversity should not be ignored. It should be celebrated because all of our diversity, all of our nationalities, all of our ethnicities, no matter what color or background, color or creed you come from, all of it brings glory to God. All right. And then finally, it is God himself that embodies diversity. All right. God is father, son and spirit. He is distinct but uh, and, and di uh, diverse, but he is also unified. All right. He is not uniform in that there is one uh, person, but there are three persons in the one triune being that is God. All right. Again, he is father, son and spirit in eternal, perpetual relationship with himself. So God is the walking embodiment of what diversity actually is. And I'm so grateful um, that we see that even in his own uh, uh, attributes uh, or his own essence, not his attributes, but in his own essence. All right. So we cannot afraid to be racially ignorant and simply say to these issues, man, well, I don't know. I don't have the issues like the people did uh, when they were looking at the video, when we were looking at the video um, with Malcolm X. We cannot afford to be uh, racially ignorant. All right. We also cannot afford to be racially indifferent and say, man, I, I don't care about none of that. I just want to preach the gospel. No, you, we cannot be indifferent to these issues, particularly knowing how they impact people of color and that they present a, 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 a blockade or a mental block um, to people receiving the gospel. We also cannot be racially insensitive and just be careless with our words and, and not do research and not do proper study, not do proper exegesis, and then be insensitive to just paint all people with a broad brush. We cannot be careless and insensitive when dealing with these issues. And then last of all, we certainly cannot be willfully uh, hatred. We cannot have willfully hatred where we are sinfully impartial, purposely and intentionally towards one group of people. Um, we cannot afford any of those four things. We must be accurate and we must be integral in our presentation of the people and the places that are contained in the sacred scriptures. All right. So um, now we want to get into where does the root of white supremacy actually come from? Where did this begin? 
So Dr. Uh, excuse me, uh, Pastor Gay, I'm just keep calling him doctor. Dr. Gay in his book, he talks about um, this particular quote that came from Tacitus, the Roman historian. All right. And if you know, um, not just biblical, but world history, at the time that Jesus walked the earth, the Jews were subjugated. They were colonized under the Roman Empire. And Tacitus was a Roman historian. And he writes in this particular writing in, in Germania, he says, let the straight leg man laugh at the club footed man and the white man at the black man. So in his estimation, the perfect man or the, uh, the superior man was the one that was free from the taint of intermarriage. He believed and, and taught that whites were pure and superior, but that the source of their superiority was in their blood that they were somehow superior simply because they were white. And again, this is one of the, uh, the very earliest mention of superiority based upon whiteness. So I talked about earlier how um, when, we, uh, when we look at, we see this in, in art, we see it in literature, we see it in writing. And I took the time when I put this presentation together to simply Google the name Jesus. And I want you to see what popped up. These, um, and you can go and do it today. Uh, you can see here in there, I just simply typed in Jesus and these are the images that pop up. I don't know about you, but that, that just seems a little, yeah, yeah, no, bro. I'm sorry, my man for the office, he's with me. You know, if this was the breakfast club, we'd be giving donkey of the day to the internet. Um, this should not be the case when we go to Google the name of Jesus a brown-skinned Aramaic-speaking Palestinian Jew um, in an area where, while he probably was, was not black as I am, he certainly did not look like these European white people. So I don't know where this com comes from um, and everything like that. But again, this is what happens. This is a, a, a very vivid example of whitewashing. This is what pops up when we Google this, all right? So this right here, um, according to the research that I found, is the oldest painting or image of Jesus. And it's an image of Christ seated on the throne, surrounded by his apostles that can be seen in a burial chamber in the catacombs of St. Domitila in Italy. And it reflects one of the most common images of Jesus at the time. The paintings depict Jesus as the good shepherd, a young, short-haired, beardless man with a lamb around his shoulders. Again, this is the oldest um, uh, picture that actually can be found. Um, and I actually quoted the source. Um, and again, for those of you that may be interested in, um, in uh, purchasing this PowerPoint and sewing into it, um, I put the source in there for that information as well. All right. So again, the oldest image that we have, 1600 years, does not make him look like this. It actually makes him look like a person that actually came from that region. But not only in art, we told you it's not just in art, but it's in several different other places as well. Uh, give me one second because it looks like I hit the wrong button. And all right. So let's go on to the next one. Jesus on the big screen. When we look at Jesus on the big screen, these are the people that were chosen to play a brown skin, Aramaic speaking Palestinian Jew that came from a region where there were undoubtedly people of color that had some melanin in them. But these are the people that are chosen to portray Jesus on the big screen. Now, my friends, I ask you, if you're trying to look to find someone that was from that region, you would not look to these gentlemen here. All right. So why is it 
Now, is this an accident? Is there or is there something bigger at play here? And I would I would definitely contend that this is not accidental. It is intentional. Why is it that these men who do not look anything like Palestinian Jews, Aramaic speaking Palestinian Jews, why are these people the ones who are portraying Jesus on the big screen? That uh, to me, it does not make any sense. And I believe that is absolutely intentional. Not only that, we have when we when we allow things like this, we will hear people like Dr. Umar Johnson, um, who talks about the danger of white Jesus. Um, now, every um, lie has some degree of truth in it. And people like him are incredibly influential. And so when we see these images of Jesus on the big screen, when we see them in pictures, when we see them in painting, when we see them in architecture, when we see that, it puts this thing in our mind where it's not that we hate the image, we hate the person that is behind the image. And so now people are being turned off to Jesus because of the way he has been portrayed. So let's listen to what Dr. Umar says um, here on The Breakfast Club. Let's go. You think a lot of that has to do with the fact that a lot of us don't know where we're from? Because if you're a Chinese, you still have something to stand on. If you're East Asian, yes, you, you have, that, you have that psychological we, connection. We're, we're just, we, all we got is America. So and us, we're American. Unless you're Caribbean, Caribbean and Western. You know, unless you're Caribbean yeah. and but if you choose to identify as American, it's not that difficult to learn from whence you came. We all walk that road. But when you have been convinced that white people are better than you, when your subconscious has been programmed to believe that white is right and anything black should automatically get back, you will never get to the point where you even want to investigate your history because you've been already been convinced that you have none, which is why for me that white Jesus picture it's one of the greatest weapons of mass destruction in the black community. When a black boy or girl goes to Sunday school and look at a white Jesus from birth until age five, mm. by the time they go to kindergarten, they have already been convinced that if God is white, then it's okay for the president to be white. It's okay for the judge to be white. It's okay for the CEO to be white. It's okay for the police to be white. Because if God is white, then all white people must be of God. And it puts you in a subservient posture. And if God is white, then the devil must automatically be black by contraindication, which is why black folks got to stop worshiping a white Jesus. You cannot talk about black power. Giving your child the deity of an enemy for worship. No people worships the, the worships their deity in the image of their enemy or oppressor. No one does except slaves. And that's exactly what we are, because you can take the slave out of slavery. But until the slave takes the slavery out of himself. He will never be free. So you can see there, um, these are the people that are influencing the masses and they'll put a little bit of truth in there. I do believe that uh, this white Jesus has been a great weapon of mass destruction, particularly against people of color. But again, if you think about it, when you see this all the time, it becomes subconsciously like, oh, well, he must be white and whiteness must be this. If Jesus is white, then that must be the standard. Um, I thought about uh, it was a while ago. There was this image and I wish I had put it in here um, of, a, of a little black girl and she's standing in the store and she's looking at all of these dolls on the shelves and every one of the dolls is white. And it, it, it created this pain. The, the picture just painted the picture for us in our minds what it was like for that little girl who is looking for dolls and, and things to play with that look like her. But all she ever sees is something that looks incredibly not like her. And then they flipped it and put a white girl there and then had her looking up only at black dolls. And it definitely painted the picture then because then it, it was like this uproar in the same way that the brother in A Time to Kill flipped it when he flipped it on the white jury 
and made them think about what it would have been like for Samuel L. Jackson's daughter to have been their daughter, then all of a sudden they become a little bit more empathetic. But we don't see that same empathy when they think about how it is for us to have grown up only seeing an image of Jesus that looks like a white European, particularly for people who endured subjugation and for uh, uh, for uh, uh, 200 and, uh, plus years of slavery, seeing that image is something that creates a barrier to receiving the gospel. So it's not that we need to paint Jesus as black. What we need to do is paint him historically accurate as a person that uh, that looks like a person that came from that region. Again, this is not a, 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 um, a conversation about race. It's a conversation about integrity. It's a conversation about ethics. It's a conversation about the truth and the way that the distortion of that truth or the elimination of that truth has hurt and, and, and degraded uh, the, the, the dignity of a group of people. And that is something that we have to have that loving conversation. We can't run from it. We have to have that conversation. All right? So all of these whitewashed images eclipse the gospel for a false gospel, one that benefits people of European descent. The gospel is colorless. We affirm that. But the message presented to unbelievers with the flood of white emergy is that God will save you, but he didn't use anyone who looked like you in his redemptive plan, nor are anybody that looked like you included in the scriptures. The issue at hand here is how the propagation of white Jesus has impacted people of color historically and how the residue of this fallacy impacts us all today because white Jesus is the foundation of European historical whitewashing. Again, this is something that must be lovingly discussed and we need to make sure that we remove these images because they are historically accurate, inaccurate, and they are offensive to other people. All right, so Tom Skinner in this, How Black is the Gospel? He says that black America is not about to follow a white Jesus. This image of Christ's pattern after Salman's portrait is more than suspect. It has become a contemptuous symbol to the black man of all the fakery and chicanery endorsed by so many white Christians. If Christ takes on the image of an Anglo-Saxon Protestant suburbanite, then he's obviously not for black men. It is inconceivable that this kind of Christ would die for black people. For us, it creates this question in our mind if you can't be honest about the ethnicity and the skin color of Jesus, knowing that people of that region did not look like this particular painting, then what else are you lying about? If you will allow this lie to be continued to be perpetrated, what other truth will you prevent or uh, prevent from us, uh, us from knowing? And so it is incumbent upon us to research the truth out for ourselves and make sure that we are presenting an accurate um, presentation of the gospel in every single facet. All right. So I want to talk now, um, have this conversation. We talked earlier um, about the Reformation and Martin Luther and people like him and how they were influenced by the Coptic church um, that was in Ethiopia. And Dr. David Daniels, he um, begins this teaching and, and, and lets us know that the church of Ethiopia was firmly established during the first century. So a church in the lower sub-Saharan parts of Africa was established within the first 100 years of Christ's ascension. Not only that, but Ethiopia was the first kingdom to accept Christianity as its state religion. 
Last night, we looked at King Izana and the Aksumite Empire that was there in the uh, Nubian area, uh, um, you know, and everything. The Aksumite Empire that was there in the Nubian era in Sub-Saharan Africa, who in um, early, early in the um, uh, the third or excuse me, fourth century, um, received the gospel and, and, made, and King Izana made it their, uh, their state or their the religion of his empire. All right. So. During the 16th century, Ethiopia was commended by Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, for not wavering from the faith. All right. Unlike the church at Rome, they had not added unbiblical rules that had prevented people from experiencing the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So he goes on to talk about it. We're going to see a video from him where he demonstrates how Martin Luther and um, his uh, teachings from the Reformation, um, the writings that he wrote that were uh, that uh, sparked the Re uh, Reformation were um, were given to him and influenced by what he saw of the Ethiopian church in Africa. Let's listen to uh, Dr. David Daniels and this particular um, uh, clip that he had from the Jew three a video with the Jew three project. Let's take a listen. Ramification for people who are interested in world Christianity is that the Reformation then, if I'm I'm sorry, let's go back one more time. Correct. So the first ramification for people who are interested in world Christianity is that the Reformation then, if I'm correct in my argument about the role of Ethiopian Christianity and Luther's thought, is not merely a product of Western civilization in Europe. They cannot um, uh, coordinate off and say, we produce this all by ourselves. No, there is an Ethiopian element that could even be seen as one of the ways of justifying historically what Luther was arguing through his exegesis, his interpretation of scripture, biblically. So that's number one. And that's a major game changer because the Reformation is often only seen as an all-white, all-European affair that's produced by Russian civilization. But if there's a forerunner of it in Africa, um, even though Africa as a continent is recognized, it's not necessarily called Africa at this time, but if it's in Africa and Ethiopia in particular, um, that changes the way we understand the Reformation. And if this is correct, we can no longer, we should no longer write, teach, and talk about the Reformation, but only talking about Europeans. We have to introduce the Ethiopians um, into the conversation. Second is that this meeting with Michael the Deacon, which I don't think can be contested. It's there um, within the literature. Um, strangely enough, um, if one only depends on the English translations of Luther's works, it's not there. They haven't translated that letter yet. They have letters before that date, and they have letters after that date. But that date is, but that letter is conspicuously missing. Um, so, so for for people who only rely on English, they don't even know it's there. They didn't even know what happened. Um, now. The, the, so, so this meeting that happens is very, very key, because not only is, is this a, a casual meeting of, of no consequence, but Luther had a chance with this conversation with Michael the Deacon to test out what he thought about Christianity in Ethiopia. And to be able to say, my understanding of Ethiopia is not merely a figment of my imagination, but I have a clergy person who's confirming what I thought. Wow, that's a powerful confirmation um, of what he's saying. So I want to kind of um, 
help reconcile some of this for you. So it, the uh, the belief is that uh, in 1534, Martin Luther met with a representative of the Ethian church named Michael the deacon. And the details of this encounter reinforced Luther's positive assessment of the Ethiopian church. African cultures for many generations thrive all the way beginning in 42 uh, uh, AD, all the way through 692 AD, and were staunch believers in Christ. And their theology shaped that of many European, the uh, European theologians today. So let me put this in perspective for you. Martin Luther has a meeting with Michael the deacon, and he begins to see things about the Coptic church in Ethiopia, and he's influenced by what he learns from Michael the deacon. He takes some of those ideas as he is influenced by them and uses them to help spark the Reformation. But the, uh, the details of this meeting were not included in any of the writing that was translated from uh, Martin Luther. Now think about this. If you heard what Dr. Daniel said in the video, all of the stuff that happened before that meeting was translated correctly. All of the stuff that happened after that meeting was translated correctly. But all of the stuff that happened during that meeting, for some reason, didn't make it into the historical record. Why is that? Could it be? Yes, uh, Vicky, you got it. Absolutely misleading. It's causing it, it. They didn't want people to understand that Martin Luther and the Reformation, they didn't want the Coptic church in Ethiopia who influenced uh, Martin Luther. They didn't want them to get any of the credit. Again, we've, we've shown you time and time again, this is not unintentional. It is absolutely intentional. It's purposeful. But we can see here that even one of the greatest movements, and we're grateful for the movement of the Reformation. We're grateful for the teachings and things that we have learned and how they uh, uh, stood for orthodoxy and stood against the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. But we need to understand the historical accuracy that a lot or uh, at least some of what Martin Luther was sparked by, he was influenced by the Coptic church in Ethiopia. And last night we saw, if you did not get a chance to go back, please go back and listen to that teaching, whether on podcast, YouTube or Facebook. There was so much that was going on in Africa for centuries prior to the Council of Nicaea that influenced Europe and the way things were done, even at the Council of Nicaea, the way that count, there were already councils and synods going on in Carthage that were dealing with theological issues of Jesus's divinity, dealing with the triune nature of God and all of these different things that were already taking place in church councils in Carthage and places in Africa, even before the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. So what does that tell you? That tells you that there were African church fathers, bishops in Africa that were concerned with right doctrine, that were concerned with exegesis. Matter of fact, last night we learned that even the way exegesis is being done, the way that homiletics was being done, was influenced by people like Origen and people that came from the Alexand the catechetical school in Alexandria. There was so much truth, so much orthodoxy, so much um, monasticism and different things like that that began to be influencing in the entire world, but it began in the seedbed of Africa. And if we don't acknowledge that truth, then we will lose people to the lies that sound more convincing that everything began and was perpetrated uh, by white European looking Christians. Again, so it is up to us to do the research, to do the, uh, the historical research and make sure that we're presenting an accurate picture of the growth and development of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So um, whitewashing Africa happens far too much. 
And the people of this geographical uh, area of the Sudan were called Kush by the ancient Ethiopians and the Hebrews. They were called Ethiopians by the Greek, Nubians by the Christians in the sixth century AD. Bildad the Sudan, or Bildad as Sudan, the land of the blacks by the Arab uh, Muslims in 700 AD and Negroes later by Europeans. Do you see how at different points and by different people, they were called different names. All of that is done to desensitize people to the importance of the people that came from this region here. You can see here Egypt and all the way down to the Nubian desert, uh, to Moreau, um, and all of these places in the Sudan. The, the theological importance of this region cannot be overstated. Over the last three nights, we have talked about that and beat that into the ground because of the importance of what was going on in that region. And even though the King James translators of the 1611 Bible were aware of the geographical homeland of these black people in the Bible, they still called them Ethiopians. And once again, Ethiopian meant burnt face one. It was not talking about the actual area or the geographical location of Ethiopia. It was talking about the skin color of that people. Again, for the term Ethiopia did not image a black man to the English reading uh, uh, white mind. So when they hear Ethiopian, they're not thinking black person. But again, that's what that word meant. But it imaged a white man in blackish color due to the hair texture, skin color, Arabian heritage, and geographical location of modern day Ethiopian people. So let me put this in perspective. We won't call them Kushites. We won't call them Nubians. We won't talk about Aksum, but we will talk about Ethiopia. Because when people hear Ethiopia, they think about white people, they don't think black. So it's, it's done to desensitize people to the actual skin color of these people who were instrumental in the growth and development of Christianity. So now we're going to end tonight by going back and looking at a lot of these North African church fathers and people who are instrumental in the growth and development of Christianity. So the first one that we want to talk about is Tertullian. He was the first Christian author to produce an extensive quantity of Christian literature in Latin. An avid apologist um, and debater against heresy, he consistently engaged and confounded those who wanted to propagate a false gospel. He was instrumental in verbalizing and creating new theological concepts and was integral to the development of early Christian doctrine. One of the things he is most known for is coining the term Trinity. In fact, when they were looking for a way to um, describe the triune nature of Christ at the Council of Nicaea, we looked in the video last night and realized from the unspoken documentary that they had already, they had to come to the conclusion that, wow, these people in North Africa, they've already dealt with this issue and they have found the term homoousios, which meant that uh, um, um, Jesus Christ talking about one person, or excuse me, uh, three persons, but the one nature, the one essence, the one substance of God, they had already dealt with that issue in uh, Africa and it was Tertullian that had brought them to that conclusion and utilized the term Trinity to help explain that. But again, we need to make sure that we are uh, recognizing the importance of people like him. Let's keep going. All right. So origin of Alexandria. We love Alexandria, one of the many early African scholars to merge faith and reason. He was a prolific writer, um, a, a prolific writer and speaker and wrote many treatises on multiple branches of theology, including textual criticism. 
He also gave us the concepts of structure of biblical exegesis and hermeneutics. Where did that start? In or origin of Alexandria. All right. So again, he focuses on uh, preaching and sermon structure. All of this stuff began in Alexandria. And one of his greatest apologetic works is Against Celsus, where he defends orthodoxy against the pagans, Jews, and heretics. His knowledge of Trinitarian uh, thought influenced other scholars like Athanasius, uh, Jerome, and the Cappadocians. Let's keep going. So Cyprian of Carthage, we looked at Alexandria, which was in the east, Carthage, which was in the west. Cyprian exhibited great oratory skills and was a proficient apologist that defended the, uh, the church against novationism. And it was in 248 that he became the bishop of Carthage. His oratorical skills didn't limit him um, from being a prolific writer as well. And he also shared his strict views on the church that had shaped many ecclesiology um, and he had a deep appreciation for the church. He is famous for saying he is not a Christian who is not in Christ's church, as well as he cannot have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. Again, very important figure from the area of uh, Carthage uh, in the third century. And you can see here, this is what Carthage looks like on the map. This is why I'm so glad that the uh, podcasts have, uh, are able to see images on it. But you can see here, in the ancient world, there was only one other claimant along Alexandria that was internationally recognized on the African continent as a representative of a significant part of Africa, and that was Carthage. For early Western Christianity, Carthage was the key city. Um, and for those in the east, south of Libya, it was Alexandria. So you can see here Carthage on the map, an incredibly important city um, uh, in, um, in Africa. All right. So last night uh, we talked about per perpetua, uh, perpetua, excuse me, and felicity. Um, Black girls rock. Remember, we talked about that. They were martyred in the third century. Perpetua was married. Um, a married noblewoman said to have been 22 years old at the time of her death for Jesus Christ her, uh, and mother of an infant she was nursing and stood for the faith in the midst of crisis. Man, um, think about this. For those of you all, I see Vicky, Marva, uh, Siobhan, it's so good to see you. Um, think about this for those of you, whether you have children or not. She could have easily denied her faith in Jesus Christ and stayed with the baby that she had just recently given birth to but she decided that her faith in Jesus Christ was more important than her own life. And so she stands there with Felicity who stood with her and was pregnant at the time as well and was martyred. They were stabbed and killed by a gladiator um, in, um, in one of the, uh, the, uh, the, the Colosseums in that particular area. These two women are a true testament to the phrase black girls rock and an example of how God has consistently used women throughout history. Um, I think about my friend Siobhan, who I'm going to interview next week for our podcast, um, and how God has used her to share her testimony this week on the Gospel Coalition. She wrote an article about how the gospel of Jesus Christ impacted her and helped her to come out of New Age um, teaching. Um, but again, there is no other religion like Christianity that is affirming of, uh, of women, not just black women, but all women. It was women who were the first ones that were there at the tomb. It was women that stayed there with Jesus Christ at the cross when all of his male disciples left him. Um, it was women who were instrumental in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is always and always will be affirming of women. So we thank God and pause to thank God for Perpetua and Felicity and for the, uh, the way that they stood for Christ even at their martyrdom. 
All right. We thank God for uh, Lactantius. All right. He was an African teacher who converted to Christianity and deeply impacted the Christian faith with his gift of rhetoric, philosophy and apologetics. His writing infused philosophy and his personal literary training in order to confound opponents of the faith that he converted to. Lactantius also taught that the Christian faith combined religion and true wisdom and his views on the Trinity would be rejected by many and viewed as deficient. We can think of this, we can thank this African Christian for his ability to engage opposing views with literary precision and passion. It's so important to note that what is so common for us now to be able to get on Facebook, uh, Twitter, to be able to get on, um, uh, what's the other, uh, Clubhouse, uh, YouTube, and all of these other things, and stand for orthodoxy comes at no consequence to us. But for them to do that, for them to affirm the Trinity in their days, cost them their lives. So for us, we're just having arguments. We're just having debates. We're having conversations. But for them, that was they would risk getting excommunicated from the Christian community because they had not successfully come to a consensus on these issues. And many men were banished and excommunicated multiple times, and many of them gave their life for something that we take so casually um, now. But we want to pause and thank God and, and take notice of people like him. Pacomius the Great, we talked about him last night as well, but he was born in 292 in Thebes um, and was parent to parents who were not Christians. He is of e Egyptian origin and encountered the Coptic or Egyptian church. Christianity uh, among his cohorts in the Roman emperors, Christ uh, Constantine's North African army. And when he left the army around 314, he withdrew alone into the wilderness um, near his Theban home. Pacomius, y'all didn't think I was going to try and pronounce that word, did you? All right, so Pacomius is credited for building the first monastic enclosure. Remember last night we showed you the picture of the white church, again, called white, not because it was with white people, but because the walls um, were white as well. All right, he drew up common daily program for providing proportioned periods of work and prayer and pattern about a cooperative economic and disciplinary regimen. By the time he died, he had founded 11 monasteries numbering more than 7,000 monks and nuns. And we can thank him for the importance of quietness and solitude with God and establishing places for people to honor God through meditation. Again, never heard his name growing up. But Athanasius of Alexandria, probably the most historically significant thinker, theologian, and writer of all time in the church. He was a bishop in Eastern Alexandria and is most notably known for his defense of the faith at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Athanasius fought for the essence of Yeshua based on scripture and not culture. Again, it was not popular to talk about the divine nature of Jesus Christ at that particular time. All right. It was not a settled issue until after the Council of Nicaea for uh, the masses. All right. Um, he was known as the black dwarf because of his dark skin and short stature. Again, this was uh, quoted by Justo Gonzalez in his book on the history of Christianity. But when challenged, he could not provide the quote or the source from where he received that information. Athanasius was constantly accused by his enemies as being divisive, angry and sowing division. And here it is. I told you he was banished on five different occasions from the city of Alexandria. He nevertheless remained unwavering in his commitment to the divinity of the son. And his most famous work today is On the Incarnation, a book more on the divinity of the son before he took on flesh than on the incarnation itself. 
the legacy of Athanasius reveals a man committed to defending the deity of Yeshua by a plain reading of the scriptures. How many of us would risk banishment from our homes and our community, our friends and our families in order to stand for orthodoxy? But we thank God for men like Athanasius of Alexandria who did so and we owe a great deal to him. We also talked about Shenouda of a tree. He, uh, Shenouda the Great, also known as Shenouda the Shenouda of a tree, was an African church father and saint in the fourth and fifth century. He was committed to orthodoxy and confronted the heresy of his day, a prolific writer, and he led the white monastery, again, white because of the walls, and he was fluent in Coptic and Greek. He's an example of the rich Christian history in Africa and how Africa and Africans influence orthodoxy and shape the Christian faith. Um, please forgive me. It, um, we talk, when we're talking about Pacomius, the white church wasn't his. Uh, I got that confused. I'm sorry. That was Shenouda of a tree. One of the things that we learned from Dr. Vince Bantu was the importance of how people like Shenouda wrote in the Egyptian language instead of writing in Latin, with Latin, which was considered the more um, elite or the more advanced language, they thought it was important to write in the Coptic Egyptian language. And what they were doing by saying that is, or uh, saying by doing that rather, is they were saying black is beautiful. Our culture, our language is beautiful. And so in just by doing that and writing in their own language, they were showing that they were affirming the dignity of the people that look like them. And again, that's something that I learned from uh, Dr. Bantu and, and just incredibly grateful for people like him. All right. One of our last, um, we're coming to a close, is Augustine of Hippo. Hopefully you've heard of him. If you haven't, I guarantee you've heard of some sayings that came from him. He was born in North Africa in present day Algeria. Augustine has an unparalleled influence on Western Christianity, both on the Catholic and the Protestant side. And his writings were huge in shaping people theologically during his time and even now. He was a master of, uh, Dr. Uh, Jerome Gay would say he got bars. Um, Augustine was a master in rhetoric and use of modern vernacular in what many urban communities we call, we call bars, all right? Um, he gave us quotes like unity in all things necessary, liberty in things doubtful, and charity in all things with love of for mankind and hatred of sin, where we get the phrase, love, this, uh, lo love the sinner, but hate the sin. That came from Augustine of Hippo, all right? And uh, many others like Augustine is an example of the myriad of blacks used to form theology and philosophy. All right, and Cyril of Alexandria. Cyril was born in a small town in, uh, in an area of Egypt and was a patriarch of Alexandria from 412 to 444. During his tenure, he encountered immense controversy in opposition from Nestorius. One of the major factors that contributed to their disagreement was theological differences between Antioch and Alexandria. And the sharpest disagreement took place in 428 when Cyril went as far as to label Nestorius a heretic based on his view of the Virgin Mary and thinking that she should be called Christotokos. I believe that that's how that's pronounced, but it's the Greek title of Mary used historically by non-Ephesian followers of the church in the East. Its literal English translations include Christ bearer and the one who gives birth to Christ. So this was something that was a major issue of the day, the role and how these people should view Mary and the, um, 
the reverence that should be given to her as the person who um, who gave birth to Christ. Um, and many people, for whatever reason, still believe that Mary um, should be considered a virgin um, and different things. But he was one that stood against the um, the popular teaching of his day in order to make sure that proper teaching and orthodoxy um, went on and that people were not deified uh, like Mary, were not deified um, unnecessarily and incorrectly. Uh, again, so the Council of Ephesus, which Cyril presided over, would elect to send Nestorius into exile. He was uh, Cyril was committed to a deep understanding of the nature of Christ and affirmed the hypostatic union, which asserts the humanity and divinity of Christ are two distinct natures that don't conflict with one another. So let me break that down just a little bit. Um, for those of you that may not understand, Jesus Christ was 100% uh, God, but he was also 100% human. These two natures of Christ were infused into one person who is the God man of Jesus Christ. They're not in conflict um, with one another. Jesus Christ did not stop being God when he became man in the incarnation. And it was men like Cyril of Alexandria that gave us and made sure that this doctrine as presented in the sacred scriptures was actually passed down correctly and that the, uh, the heretical teaching of that day did not begin to influence Christians and lead them in a false view of, of Jesus Christ. So again, uh, I think, yes. So we're going to end tonight's presentation. Um, just give me a few more minutes and we'll be done with talking about how we can end whitewashing and work towards unity. All right. So again, this is not just a black issue. It is an issue that concerns the global church because it's false and denies the beautiful mosaic of God's family. Brothers and sisters of different hues must be willing to confront whitewashing and evangelical silence in love. We must be willing to confront issues with love and place purpose over popularity in order to move towards authentic unity. So we have to be able to have, how do we do this? We've got to be able to have honest conversation. We've got to be able to dialogue without leaving the room, even when there are voices of dissent that are expressed. We're not going to always agree, but we don't have to be disagreeable. This means that our posture can't be to sit down and shut up, but rather to disagree without being disrespectful. We've got to be able to engage with brothers and sisters of all hues, all ethnicities, all cultures, all backgrounds, and have these honest but tough conversations. That's one way to work towards unity. Then ethnic conciliation is accomplished when we affirm, not ignore or idolize. Remember, we're not here to deify nor to deny the ethnic heritage of every human being a, a human being and seek to remove animosity, distrust and hostility from our interpersonal relationships. This must become the norm and not the exception. The whitewashing and whitewashing highlights one ethnicity at the expense of all others. One of the things I did when I was in Texas the last time, uh, there was this pastor that I encountered and he wanted to uh, improve um, the uh, multiculturalness of his church. And when I heard it, I ain't gonna lie, I was like, yeah, okay, all right, let's, let's, are you saying you want more black people on the praise scene? You want more black people on the door? Or are you serious about uh, affirming the dignity of the people in your church and encountering a church, having a church that looks like the community, not just having more black people in the church so you can say that you are diverse in name, but not actually be diverse in your actual identity. And so we sat around the uh, table and we had some hard conversations. And uh, I remember at one point I was talking with one of the elders at his church and expressing how important it was for us to see 
people of color in leadership positions in the church, not on the praise team, not on greeters, um, not, you know, on the drums or anything like that with the microphone singing, but we need to see them in the pulpit. We need to see them preaching. We need to see that their teaching is affirmed, that their theology, um, that they are, you know, that their theology is affirmed. And he, um, one of his elders said, you know, I don't understand why, you know, why that matters and everything. And he went on and said some, you know, pretty disrespectful stuff. Um, and I, I think he just, he didn't understand. And I told him, um, you know, I wasn't a member of the church, so I, I didn't have to, um, I didn't have to pull no punches. And I told him straight up, I said, man, let me tell you this. If I heard you talking like this, I would never join your church. I'm going to just be honest. If you can't understand why it's important for people of color to see people that look like us in leadership positions in the church, then you don't really understand why this issue is so important to us. We need to see when things happen um, to black people in the news, like they did with Tyre Nichols, uh, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. It, we cannot have silence in the pulpit when these issues are coming up. We've got to be able to bring two opposing sides together and have these conversations. When stuff like that is going on and we had the racial um, uh, uproar that we had about two or three years ago, we can't have silence in the pulpit from our pastors and say, just preach the gospel because the gospel, it dealt with issues of ethnicity. That was exactly what was going on in Acts the sixth chapter. So again, we can't just preach the gospel, preach the birth, death and resurrection without identifying and talking about these issues and bringing them to the forefront of our conversations and how they impact people. So the gospel isn't colorblind, it is color engaging. All right. Um, as uh, Thabiti, uh, I'm not even going to try and pronounce this brother's name, but a, a, a black, this black scholar says, he says, the colorblind approach proceeds on a misdiagnosis of the problem. Seeing color in the physical sense of, of seeing is not the problem. Unless one is actually blind, we all see color. And admitting that people have skin pigments of varying hues and that sometimes those hues cluster into what the Bible calls families, clans, kinsmen, and nations, that is not the problem. A kingdom ethic is one that sees the differences between within humanity as one aspect of the creative genius of a God who can create something from nothing. And he's absolutely correct. We need to engage of uh, the color and the different hues and the different ethnicities that are seen in the scripture. Um, and we see it all of the time. We need to engage that and not operate with this colorblind mentality that acts as if you don't see the different hues that are there in the Bible. You don't see the different ethnicities in the Bible. It's something that we need to be honest about. So how can we help? Here are some practical ways that uh, uh, Pastor Gay identifies in his book. One, funding more black and brown missionaries, people that understand the gospel, who are able to speak accurately and articulately to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be able to um, talk about these issues from an articulate and educated perspective. We need to fund them and send them into places where their teaching um, can impact people. The next thing is an increase of black and brown presidents of seminaries. We need to see black scholars. We need to see black theologians, black writers, um, black authors, um, people like Tanisha Stewart and other people. You know, there are so many incredibly educated, profound thinking, uh, prolific writers who are African-American. But many times when we look for commentaries, all we see is Matthew Henry. All we see is Jameson Fawcett and Brown. All we see is Albert Barnes. All we see is predominantly white 
white scholars talking about the Bible when there are phenomenal um, thinkers out there and, and, and writers and authors out there. And we need to see their works included and given the same stature as white authors, scholars, seminarians, so on and so forth. And then an increase in diverse authors, theologians, and speakers heard in seminaries and conferences. When you're thinking about bringing people in, there are some great giants out there um, that are white, and we thank God for them. Um, you know, I, I know I do, um, and everything. I came up listening to Norman Geisler, um, listening to, um, oh, man, I can't think of his name, the uh, Ligonier podcast, uh, uh, brother. Um, now all these names are, are, are uh, escaping my mind. Um, but um, oh, man, it'll come to me. Um, but uh, I thank God for all of them. But along with inviting the popular people um, who are white, we need to be looking at some African-American scholars and making sure that we invite them um, along too, um, because there are some incredible thinkers out there, some incredible writers out there. And we want to make sure that we are giving voice um, to them as well as and giving voice to people of all ethnicities and all uh, nationalities and different things, because we see the diversity and the glory of God in doing that as well. So I want to end this. Um, this will be on my last two slides. Um, uh, the teaching that you have seen tonight comes from a multitude of different sources, primarily, of course, um, uh, Jerome Gay's book. But I want to recommend these sources if you want to screenshot this particular slide. Um, um, Urban, uh, not Sinclair. Uh, um, see, now you got me thinking, Cedric. Um, Somebody give me, I know it's enough of y'all on here. Somebody, the brother from uh, Ligonier Ministries, he passed away um, not too long ago. Um, I cannot think of his name to save my life. And it's going to bother me until I do. So let me look at his podcast real quick. R.C. Sproul. Um, R.C. Sproul. And then there's um, Siobhan, if you're still on here, there's the uh, the reformed brother uh, from the north. Uh, oh, man. Anyway, um, I, it's just it's just blowing my mind now. But let me give you these recommended readings. Um, uh, number one. Urban Apologetics, uh, chaired by Dr. Eric Mason. Many uh, prolific writers in there, uh, Dr. Tiffany Gill, um, uh, Damon Richardson, um, Dr. Vince Bontu, Jerome Gay is in that book, um, Dr. Sarita Gill, um, uh, just, uh, just an incredible amount of theologians, scholars, um, people with doctoral degrees and stuff, just an incredible writing. Um, prior to that, there was the Urban Apologetics book written by, uh, oh no, Cedric, um, uh, Dr. Robbie Zacharias, um, uh, that's what you say. See, I mean, say that name. Um, um, I'm, I'm sorry for those that, that may uh, trigger some people. Um, but uh, before Dr. Eric Mason's um, Urban Apologetics, there was uh, Christopher Brooks' Urban Apologetics, a shorter reading, um, but just incredibly insightful and was doing the work of Urban Apologetics um, before Dr. Eric Mason um, released his book as well. Um, the Whitewashing of Christianity, that's the book this particular teaching is based upon, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind by Thomas Oden. Um, a, a lot of the material that we covered yesterday was based upon that. Black Church Empowered by Isaiah Robertson. Uh, Woke Church was actually the first book that I actually read that really kind of got me started on this journey. And uh, Dr. Eric Mason just blew me away with that book and just really opened my mind up to these issues and helped me um, sparked in me um, the um, uh, the passion to become an urban apologist. So I'm uh, so eternally grateful to him for that. Um, a multitude of all peoples. Um, 
I'm actually finishing that one up now uh, by Dr. Vince Bantu. Um, just an incredible book, um, A History of Christianity in Africa uh, by Elizabeth Ishay and Through the Eyes of Color by the Jew 3 Project. They also have a podcast, a YouTube channel where they are constantly um, uh, putting information out like this that is just incredibly insightful. Um, and then I think we have one more. Yep. Uh, Blacks Who Die for Jesus by Mark Hyman, uh, Defending Black Faith by Dr. Craig Keener and uh, Glenn Usry. The Black Black Presence in the Bible by uh, Reverend Walter McCray. Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Coppin? Uh, uh, if you're looking for a book that deals with like slavery in the Bible, genocide in the Old Testament, and the um, the notion from some people that the God of the Old Testament um, and everything was just cruel in some of the things that happened. His book is just phenomenal in answering those questions. Uh, Reading While Black, Dr. Esau McCauley, The Color of Compromise uh, by Jamar Tisby, um, Oneness Embraced by Dr. Tony Evans. And I put this book in there because it was incredibly insightful, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. If you don't have that book, by Randolph Richards and Brandon O'Brien. You gotta get that book. When I tell y'all that thing, there's actually a PowerPoint that I did on my uh, website um, the, based upon uh, some of that teaching as well. But that thing, uh, and there's actually a video on YouTube as well that I did um, um, talking about it. But that thing blew my mind. Um, that, I mean, that book was just mind blowing and opening up my eyes to the cultural mores um, and the way that things are written in scripture that if you're not familiar with that world, you're not familiar with that language, you're not familiar with the archaeology and the geography of that region, then it will warp our understanding of what was actually written in the text. And the way that they bring that out, it had me questioning everything that, not everything, but you know, hyperbolically, it had me questioning a lot of what I read um, in the scriptures and definitely caused me to dig deeper um, in my understanding of the scriptures. But again, misreading scripture with Western eyes really helps us to see how the Bible was written in the East, but we are from the West, those of us who are in the Western world, how we automatically look at it like through the filter um, of how uh, language that we understand and in uh, and, and geography, we don't understand, but it really opened up my eyes. Um, so take a moment and uh, um, screenshot those um, and everything like that. They would definitely be great additions um, to your library. So. Um, that is the end of our teaching for tonight. Um, Y'all pray for me. Um, we got some teaching next week. Next week, we're going to present a teaching called Man, Myth, Messiah. And we're going to go and look at um, Horus. We're going to go look at um, Tammuz. We're going to go look at all of these people, these false idol gods that they say Christianity um, was based upon. We're going to go to the primary sources, um, uh, primary source documents of those false idol gods and demonstrate um, empirical evidence that Christianity did not evolve from any of those religions. So we're going to have a good time next week. That's going to be an incredible product. Um, but tonight's um, uh, PowerPoint, if you're interested in, um, in obtaining it, by all means, just go to my website, www.greaterworksdiscipleship.com. Um, if you would like to sow a seed for, uh, to the teaching on tonight, that would be great. Um, uh, my uh, cash app is dollar sign KB Greater Works. Um, and everything. Um, um, I, um, hey, the military has been good to me. Um, you know, God has um, provided everything I need. But if you feel led to be a blessing, if you learned something over the last three nights, by all means, you're more than welcome to sow a seed. If not, um, just continue to support the channel. And uh, we appreciate you for that. Um, I love what I do. I'm passionate about it. I believe um, and know that God has called me to do this. And we're going to continue doing it as long as God gives me breath. 
Um, so those of you that have been sticking with us, Sister Vicky, I, I appreciate you so much um, um, for sticking around and everything, your comments and everything like that are a blessing. Marva, you are a great support um, to this channel um, and everything into my ministry. I'm just so grateful to you. My best friend is on um, and everything like that. So uh, grateful for him um, and everything. And for the many of you others that are on and rocking with us on, um, on YouTube. Stephanie, if you're still here with us, um, thank God for you as well. Um, so um, I want to take just five minutes or so, if that, if anybody has any questions, I'm going to close in prayer. If you got a question about something that was covered um, on tonight, um, again, something within this particular uh, area, by all means, type your uh, question in the chat and I'll do my best to answer it, even if I have to come back and uh, do some research and get back to you. Um, but with that said, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we pause for a moment and we are um, incredibly grateful for the opportunity to present this teaching for the people who have uh, sacrificed some of their time um, and uh, to just be able to learn um, more about you. Um, we're grateful um, as we learned about the intentional whitewashing of people of color um, and um, people who were instrumental in the growth and development of Christianity, people who stood for orthodoxy, who stood for right teaching. Um, we don't want their memories, their contributions um, to be neglected. We don't want them to be whitewashed. We don't want them to be forgotten, um, but they deserve uh, credit um, for their immense contributions to the faith. And so we thank you for uh, those that have researched and, and, and looked at them. We thank you for the ability to put these slides together, to be able to educate, equip, and empower people um, with the truth about Christianity, its origins, about its growth and development, and how it was done so in the seedbed of Africa. Um, we thank you that you are a God who is diverse, but you don't require nor desire for us to be uh, uniform um, in our worship to you, just to be unified. And so we pray that this teaching um, is not seen as divisive to anyone, but it will help us to understand the distinct and uh, the distinguished um, uh, nature of the people who were uh, instrumental in the spread of Christianity. We are eternally grateful to you, God, lastly, for those who gave their lives um, in support of the gospel, who stood defiantly in the face of opposition, in the face of um, heretical teaching, and gave their lives the ultimate sacrifice um, uh, to make sure um, that they did not deny the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, um, and we remember them on tonight. And we pray uh, uh, blessings upon all those that are with us on tonight. We thank you for them in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, man. I love y'all so much. I'm so grateful for y'all hanging out with your boy. Um, I will try to put out a, a warning a little bit earlier next week um, of when we'll actually be presenting that teaching and pray that you all are actually able to attend. So again, thank you all so much for being with us on tonight. And until next week, um, we'll see you. God bless. And we love you.